Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Bob Litterman, partner at Capus Capital and a board member here at RFF. Bob was recently named the chair of a new committee that will be advising U.S. financial regulators on the economic risks of climate change, which makes a lot of sense given his extensive experience working on risk management in the financial sector and his deep interest in climate change. We'll talk about the scale of the risks to the U.S. financial system from climate change. I'll also ask Bob about how and whether markets are currently pricing in the risks of climate change for assets like coastal property or energy companies. Finally, we'll talk about a new paper Bob has co-authored that takes an unconventional and novel approach to carbon pricing. Stay with us. Okay, Bob Litterman, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. We really appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Thank you, Dan. So, Bob, we're going to talk today about climate risk in the context of uh, financial markets. But before we dive into the substance of our conversation, we always like to ask our guests how they got interested in environmental issues in the first place. So what brought you into this world? Well, I tell you, I really have a bit of an eclectic background. Uh, My undergraduate major was human biology. And I thought I was going to be a reporter, a newspaper reporter. I I, uh, had worked on newspapers quite a bit as an undergraduate. Uh, My first job was with the San Diego Union. But uh, I decided early on in my journalistic career that I needed to get a specialty. And my background in human biology had kind of convinced me that if you want to understand human behavior, you have to understand incentives. And so... I decided to go back and get a PhD in economics, which I did from the University of Minnesota. I taught for a couple of years at MIT and uh, then went back to Minnesota and worked for five years for the Federal Reserve Bank there as an economist uh, in charge of economic forecasting. And in 1986, I got a call from Goldman Sachs. Uh, They made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and I ended up going to Wall Street. Uh, as one of the early quants or financial engineers is, I guess, what they go by these days. And, uh, and so I started working on uh, financial engineering, uh, building models, uh, pricing derivatives, and so on. I then uh, moved into risk management. I spent four years as the head of uh, firm-wide risk management at Goldman. And then I moved to the Asset Management Division and spent 11 years as head of the Quantitative Group in Asset Management, at which point I thought I was going to retire. And I left Goldman, but uh, some of the folks that worked for me uh, left about a year later and invited me to join them. And so I became a founding partner at Kepos Capital, which is where I am today. But about the time I was leaving Goldman, one of my partners uh, asked me to lunch and uh, asked me, are, are you interested in environmental issues? And at the time, like many people, I suppose, I was kind of concerned about climate change, uh, thought of it as a potentially a serious risk management issue, uh, but didn't know a lot about it. And I thought, well, you know, as long as I'm uh, moving on, maybe this would be something interesting. So I told him I could be interested, you know, and uh, he introduced me to a couple of organizations, in particular, 
the World Wildlife Fund, uh, although also resources for the future. And, uh, and I started getting involved. I joined the National Council of World Wildlife Fund and later joined the boards of both RFF and uh, WWF. And I really started digging into this. And I, and I remember early on thinking, you know, the uh, essence of this problem is that we're not pricing the risk. And uh, I mentioned this uh, to my colleague, actually, Larry Linden, who uh, had invited me to lunch. And Larry said, you know, Bob, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's very typical of an economist to say uh, you're not pricing the risk, but the problem is no one knows where to price it. And that, that really struck me as a challenge. I mean, here I am, an economist, uh, you know, an expert in risk management, and uh, you're telling me no one knows where to price it? I, I can't believe that. So I started reading the economic literature, and what I discovered is, uh, you know, Larry was kind of right. Uh, this literature, at least back then, this is probably 10, well, more than 10 years ago, uh, was not in great shape, uh, I would say, and I don't mean to be uh, negative about the literature, but uh, at the time, you know, uh, that really sucked me into this literature and I started doing work. And in fact, uh, as a result of that, a couple of colleagues and I, Gernot Wagner and Kent Daniel and I, published a paper just uh, last October in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that focus on pricing risk. So right. it's that's what really kind of sucked me in. I would say it's more from my risk management and economist background than it is from uh, an environmental or outdoorsy or whatever, you know, type of uh, background that often brings people into these issues. Right. That's great. And yeah, I, I want to ask you about that paper, um, and I will in a couple of minutes. Um, but it's great that, you know, you have that uh, background that's a little different from, from many of the guests that, that come on our show who do start sort of with a, sometimes a naturalist perspective or experience in the outdoors. Um, before we talk about that that paper, I want to ask you about a new subcommittee that you are chairing. Um, it's a subcommittee under the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, uh, and in turn, it's part of the Climate-Related Market Risk Subcommittee of the CFTC's Market Risk Advisory Committee. So we're not going to sort of <laughs> spend too much time uh, on acronyms today, although we could. Uh, but let's start with the basics. Can you tell us the purpose of this new subcommittee that you're chairing, who you'll be making your recommendations? to uh, and how you personally became involved in it. Sure. Well, to, uh, to start with the question of what's our purpose, our purpose is to provide feedback to the financial regulators, in particular the CFTC, uh, but we have a relatively broad mandate uh, uh, from the financial community and, uh, and, and actually the corporate community more generally about what are the implications of climate risk for the regulation of financial markets? And I say we have a rather broad mandate. I mean that uh, we have been instructed to think about both the physical risks and also potential transition risks, and uh, not only things like uh, reporting and disclosure, also scenario analysis, maybe uh, new instruments that might be useful for hedging climate risk and uh, both in the short term and in the long term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, you'll be advising primarily the CFTC, I, I take it? 
Well, we'll be writing a report. Uh, we've uh -huh. been asked by the CFTC to write a report uh, with the deadline of June of next year, so a relatively short uh, horizon. It's going to be a high-level, I think, report, and uh, hopefully we'll have some uh, recommendations to the CFTC. But, uh, but really, you know, you can't separate risk, you know, climate risk management from, uh, you know, to one regulator because really there's many uh, different levels of financial regulation involved. And so in some sense, we'll be uh, directing this report to, uh, you know, all of those who regulate the uh, financial uh, community in the U.S. And so my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the establishment of this committee um, is a is a new thing. Uh, we haven't had a, a high-level committee like this advising uh, financial regulators in the past, at least in the U.S. And so can you speak to whether whether that's accurate, in my perception? And, and also, um, you know, from your perspective, does the establishment of this committee signal any kind of new degree of seriousness with which the U.S. financial sector is trying to account for climate risk? Yeah, I, I think you're right that it's probably the first time that something like this has been commissioned in the U.S. Of course, there's plenty of work that's been done in Europe in particular and, and frankly, around the world. And so there is, for instance, a NGFS. I guess we don't want to go into acronyms, but a network <laughs> for a green financial system, which is really a group of uh, central banks and other uh, financial regulators uh, from different countries around the world. And uh, there's 40-some countries, including a number of European countries, China, uh, Singapore, you know, just uh, uh, now it does not include the U.S. Fed, although I believe the uh, DFS, I think it's called, the New York State Banking and Insurance Regulator, has joined as a member. Uh, and... Um, you know, this is a topic that's being discussed. That is to say, what are the implications of climate risk for financial markets uh, broadly around the world? And uh, so it's definitely something that uh, banks, insurance companies, uh, investors, asset owners are all focusing on. You, you know, I, I would uh, point to the uh, Financial Stability Board, which a few years ago encouraged the development of the task force on uh, climate-related financial disclosure. Uh, so there's a lot of conversations going on in many different places, and I think the uh, CFTC commissioners just felt like it was time uh, to do something in the U.S. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And so let's transition now uh, from talking about the context to actually sort of talking about the substance of the, the work. And that is, you know, the confluence of climate risks and, and different types of markets. When I was first thinking about this topic, there were sort of two major risks that came to mind. And I want to sort of lay them out and, and, and get your reaction to them and see if I'm thinking about things the right way. So one of the major risks that we think about is the risks of climate change. So damage to coastal infrastructure, damage from wildfires, higher temperatures, and other uh, physical or socioeconomic impacts. And then the second 
economic risk is the uh, potential impacts of climate change policies, where ambitious policies could harm the performance of companies that, say, produce coal or transport oil or refine uh, petroleum products. So are, are those the right sort of two buckets to be thinking about? And um, kind of how would you break up this, uh, this challenge in broad strokes? Yes, those are definitely the right two buckets, although uh, some people would add liability risk as well, or uh -huh. litigation risk, and uh, I guess that could uh, fall into either of those buckets, but uh, leaving that aside, um, yes, I think the, uh, the long-term physical impacts of climate are really what I worry about the most, of course, and, uh, you know, they're very uncertain. And uh, they do tend to be long term, but uh, they can also have uh, short term impacts. You saw uh, what happened to PG&E uh, last year from the wildfires. Uh, right. So we're already we've already seen a major bankruptcy associated with a climate related uh, event, and. Uh, and you could have, you know, significant uh, depreciation of real estate along the coasts or in other flood-prone areas. So, uh, you know, th these risks are already being realized, and they're expected to get worse in the decades ahead. But then uh, you bring up uh, the transition risks as well, and they are very real. And in particular, if you think about uh, and I don't want to oversimplify the policy response, but uh, the heart of the policy response are the incentives that we uh, as a society provide to uh, reduce emissions. And right now, those incentives go the wrong way. Uh, yeah. Governments around the world are subsidizing the production and consumption of fossil fuels. And so uh, that can't last forever. Uh, and in fact, uh, as a risk manager, one of the things uh, that I focus on is the fact that we're not pricing the risk. This is the key uh, mistake that we're making, and I don't think we're going to continue to make that forever. So uh, to grossly oversimplify the, the point, when we decide that we're going to price this risk, uh, I don't think that we will slowly increase the price from the wrong direction to the right direction. We will uh, have a, uh, you know, a, a change to where we start to price the risk and uh, the appropriate level is, uh, is a high level. We have to create strong incentives now to reduce emissions. And so I view that very positively as a phase change in the economy, which uh, has not yet happened. Now, most people don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I have no idea myself when it will happen, but I certainly hope it's soon because, again, coming at this from a risk management perspective, and we can talk more about this, uh, the cost of delay is quite large. And, uh, and is growing larger every day that we delay. So my uh, expectation is at some point soon, we're going to price the risk and, uh, and that will be a big change. Now, as you point out, when we price that risk, it's going to have uh, you know, potentially significant costs in terms of jobs lost in the fossil fuel industry and potentially uh, changes in asset valuations. You know, uh, you, you never know 
uh, first of all, when this is going to happen, if it's going to happen, and whether those impacts will be significant or not. But I do think that uh, many economists uh, worry about uh, that transition risk, and some even talk about the potential for a Minsky moment, which uh, I think refers to the fact that perceptions can change very quickly. And so if all of a sudden everyone realizes, oh my God, we're going to have to price emissions and that's going to happen next year, you could have uh, asset prices you know, uh, have a, a significant move over a short period of time. Uh, and uh, so that could lead to a systemic risk to the uh, economy, uh, either here or more broadly around the world. So uh, this is a scenario that we want to take seriously. Right. Yeah. And people, you know, certainly talk about that, that scenario. And, you know, particularly with regard to government policies that address climate by, by pricing the risk, as you describe. I guess one question that I was really interested in asking you, given your you know extensive experience with markets, is how well do you think markets are currently accounting for the risks that we're talking about, both the physical risks and the transition risks, uh, in different sectors of the economy? Like, are, are the financial markets doing a good job at pricing this risk? In your view, are they going to have a, a Minsky moment or, or something of the like where, you know, things turn on a dime and then get very unstable? Um, or are, you know, asset managers... Um, already taking those things into account in a way that, that might be effective? Or maybe it's impossible to know the answer to that question, but, but that's what I was wondering. No, it's a great question. And let me just distinguish, because first of all, if we talk about our financial markets pricing climate risk uh, per se, uh, financial markets can't price the externality of emissions. That's right. up to governments. So right. the answer to that question is no, governments are not pricing climate risk appropriately. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, very passionate about trying to get that done. But uh, your question is really the second question, which is are financial markets appropriately pricing in the probability of government action? And, uh, well, I would, I would answer that this way. Uh, about six years ago, the World Wildlife Fund uh, started talking about what should we be doing in our portfolio uh, to address climate risk. And uh, we talked about divestment, but it turned out that uh, most of our risk was in illiquid assets. And, uh, and, and by the way, we didn't have that much, but it would have cost us a lot to try to clean uh, what we called our stranded assets, coal and tar sands and uh, oil exploration and production out of the portfolio. So we did something that was rather innovative. We created an overlay and in effect sold those positions through the overlay. It, it, we called it a stranded asset total return swap. And it was basically we got paid the total return on the market as represented by the S&P 500 and we paid uh, a counterparty, Deutsche Bank, the total return on a basket of stranded assets. Now, I often get asked the question, why would anyone ever take the other side of that? And the answer there is, of course, they don't really take the other side, they just execute uh, on your behalf and, and the market takes the other side. Now, I thought this was a, a good instrument because it, uh, first of all, uh, insulated our portfolio 
from any potential decline in stranded assets. And I thought, you know, it, it's uh, probably a good bet as well. It's basically a bet, if you want to think about it that way, that stranded assets are going to underperform the market. Uh, what I had no anticipation of was how badly the stranded assets would perform uh, over the next six years, which is to say to date, uh, those stranded assets, and, and we rebalance every year, but those stranded assets have underperformed by over 100% relative to the market. So, yes, it turned out to be a very good uh, hedge to our portfolio, but to answer your question, coal and uh, other stranded assets have dramatically underperformed the market. So, there has been a repricing of assets. Yeah. Now, the interpretation of that repricing is always uh, somewhat unclear. You know, people would talk about, well, it wasn't climate change. It was cheap natural gas due right. to fracking uh, and, uh, and so on. So you can always come up with a story about why uh, returns are what they are. But uh, it's also true that that those returns were very strong prior to the uh, Paris Agreement. They then hit uh, several years of underperformance, and now in the last year and a half, uh, they've been performing, that is, the market has been outperforming stranded assets uh, uh, quite s significantly. So my personal view, but it's just a view, this is not a proof or anything, but my view is that, uh, that all of the repricing has not built into those uh, stranded assets and that uh, they will continue to underperform. Yeah. Another side of the sort of pricing risk in the markets question that I was wondering about is um, what your view is on how well the market is pricing the physical risk from, say, coastal infrastructure or coastal property. Um, have you uh, looked closely at that or thought much about it? Well, I've thought about it because, uh, you know, that's a, a significant risk to the financial markets. I think there has been, again, as with the stranded assets, with coastal real estate, there has been a significant repricing, particularly those that are, you know, in the most exposed areas, uh, barrier islands and so on. And, uh, you know, are they appropriately priced? Hard to say, but have the valuations of those exposed properties been affected by climate change? I think the answer is yes, very much so. Interesting. So last question, we only have a couple minutes left. Last question before I ask you about what's on the top of your stack is I want to uh, briefly get your summary of this paper that you mentioned earlier, the paper called Declining CO2 Price Paths, uh, which you published in PNAS with Gernot Wagner and Kent Daniel. Um, so most existing climate economy models suggest that sort of the economically efficient approach to pricing uh, CO2 emissions is to start low and increase over time, uh, but you guys find the opposite. So can you tell us again, you know, kind of briefly, uh, but in, in terms that sort of a general audience can understand, what are some of the principles that underlie that conclusion that you want, want to start high and then decrease over time? Sure. Well, it is a mathematically complicated paper, but yeah. uh, so I will uh, grossly oversimplify. But the basic idea is uh, I describe it as a slam on the brake scenario. And the idea is that we all agree we should price the externality. The question is, what is the uh, externality? And what we said is, you know, 
you can't leave risk out of this picture. You have to think about the full distribution of potential outcomes, and uh, and you got to worry about the worst case scenarios, and uh, and then we apply what you might call the uh, methods of modern asset pricing, which basically say that in bad scenarios, uh, your you know additional dollars are worth more. And uh, so you want to put more weight on those bad scenarios. And uh, what we end up with is recognizing that you have to be prepared today for uh, a bad outcome in the future. We, we have a random variable which represents the fragility of the environment. And uh, we basically therefore have a model in which the environment may be very robust or it may be very fragile. And today we just don't know. And so in order to prepare for that, we have to start with a relatively high price that means that we're prepared in case it is a fragile environment. And importantly, then we will, uh, we should respond to new information. The, the existing models typically say, let's pick a policy and stick with it. And uh, the policy is uh, what I call an ease on the brakes policy because it starts low and then slowly goes up over time. Our policy is it tries to be uh, more realistic and say, no, we have uncertainty about the future. You've got to slam on the brakes and then respond to new information. If things are better than the worst case, over time you can ease up a little bit. If they're worse, you have to you know, raise the price uh, in, in response to that new information. So it turns out the expected price path declines because you're being cautious today and, uh, and worrying about the worst case. Uh, but it may go up over time if you get bad news. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Um, you know, it definitely reminds me of the conversation I had a few months back with Gernot about you know Martin Weitzman's work and the sort of uncertainty that 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 he identified and the implications of that for for carbon pricing policies. Right, I think Marty was uh, you know way ahead of his time in in basically pointing that you have to worry about the tails, and uh, you know and, and you know I'll tell you our paper really uh, grew out of a paper that uh, Larry Summers and, uh, and Richard Zeckhauser wrote uh, years ago and in which they wrote down a very simple model uh, and one of their conclusions was it's unclear whether increased risk causes today's price to be higher or lower. And, you know, I thought, uh, wait, that doesn't make any sense. And <laughs> so part of what our paper is, is really taking their, their suggestion seriously and saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, they were right. It does t they basically said it depends on parameters. And so we basically said, well, okay, let's see what those parameters are and build a model and, and see what the implications are. And it turned out to be a very rich uh, set of issues, and uh, and that's what we were investigating in that paper. So interesting. Well, um, Bob Litterman, thank you again so much for talking about you know both of these really fascinating topics today. I know we're just scratching the surface, but uh, but hopefully this is whetting people's appetites to learn more. Um, and uh, and we'll close by asking you the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is, what have you been reading or watching or listening to recently related to the environment or, or any of the issues we've talked about today that you think is really interesting uh, and that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, the, uh, 
the IPCC 1.5 degrees report, a little bit scary, but uh, to me that really uh, is, uh, you know, from a risk management perspective, it says, look, this is an urgent, urgent problem. We, uh, we're at one degree C above historical average. We've already put enough CO2 into the atmosphere that it's going to be very hard to keep the warming to one and a half. And, uh, and the difference between one and a half and two is just very, very frightening. I, I think that historically scientists had a view that you really get into a danger zone well above two. And uh, now I think they realize that uh, two degrees C is very much a danger zone. And, and frankly, if we don't price emissions in the next few years, every, here's a scary thing, every three years, the maximum temperature is going up by about a tenth of a degree. It just becomes too late. That's the cost of delay. And so if we're today shooting for something like 1.7 or 1.8, you know, we're less than 10 years away from crossing two. And uh, again, that report was pretty scary about two degrees, just as a, a you know, a simple closing soundbite. Uh, the IPCC thinks that at 2 degrees C, we're going to lose over 99% of the world's coral reefs. To me, that is a catastrophe. And so uh, I'm working as hard as I can to get emissions priced as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's a sober note to end on, but an appropriate one, given given our conversation today and the work that you're, that you're doing. So... Um, so we'll end it there. And thank you once again, Bob Litterman, for joining us today on Resources Radio. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.